happy ATC Day to one and all. Not only are the 2023 ATC projections debuting today, but we've also got a draft prep pod for you as well. It's our catcher preview show. We'll go through the catcher bargains as per the ATC projections with NFBC guru Vlad Sedler of FTN Fantasy next on Beat the Shift. And welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm so glad we are up to draft season prep. And uh, what better guest to have than Vlad Sedler? Welcome to the show, Vlad Sedler from FTN Fantasy, NFBC Pro. What's going on, Vlad? How are you? Gentlemen, great to uh, to talk to you on this uh, this fine Tuesday in January. It's just still so far away from uh, from from the regular season, from opening day. But I know uh, we are all at uh, at full speed currently. Oh, absolutely! Yep. ATC projections are in motion. By the time that this podcast gets out, you might see it up or shortly thereafter. So tomorrow, actually today, when you uh, hear this, ATC day. Moved it up a day earlier, Wednesday, January 18th, ATC Day. Hope you enjoy the day. Enjoy the ATC projections. Uh, but I know, Vlad, you do your own projections, the VDP projections. First of all, most importantly, what does it stand for? Uh, you know, it is. It, it stands for Vlad's draft positions. Uh, it could be Vlad's draft projections. Um, it actually is both. Um, originally, uh, Vlad's draft positions are a ranking system that is a, a good way to basically identify market inefficiencies uh, against the NFBC's ADP. And then people can use it for their leagues that are not NFBC. Uh, but that's what I've done over the years. Uh, Pre-content, uh, before I used to produce content, I would do it for myself. Now I share it with the world. And um, this is the, the projections are, are the extension of that, the actual math behind it, which I, I show with a essentially like an auction value for a 15-team mix, like a VDP value, uh, per, like a dollar value per player. And that's what uh, the projections are. So they just came out uh, just came out Monday. So we're, we're in day two in this. And definitely log on to FTN Fantasy. Great, great site. I can tell you there's projections, there's articles. Um, Going to be a podcast uh, as well this year again, right? Yeah, we'll be back, myself and uh, Maddie Wood, Matthew Davis. Uh, we... Are, uh, we're going to get back into the swing of things starting next week. And yeah, I mean, it, it's just always so much better when, when you can talk about it, right? Because I've been, you know, I'm, I feel very much in tune with fantasy baseball, even though it's middle of January. I think I'm on like my seventh draft champions, I've done a few gladiators, uh, you know, full set of projections, rankings, everything. But there's really nothing like being able to talk about it with your friends, right? Like when you and I went and met in, uh, in, in first pitch, Arizona, Absolutely. there's just nothing like that. It really kind of, kind of gets, uh, um, you know, gets, gets the bones going. So, uh, how, how is your VDP created? This is, uh, you manually going through, uh, players and it's, uh, Vlad's insights through and through, or are you doing some kind of formulaic stuff? How, how does it work? Yeah, there's a, there's a formulaic part, but it starts off from scratch really. Um, like sort of like a, a, a fresh batch of pasta. Um, you know, I guess that you're making every year, but, uh, 
basically just starts out like a you know like a blank Google Doc. I just go team by team. First, start with the offenses. Uh, then I go through the pitchers. Usually, it takes me about a month to get through it uh, to do it right. But basically, what I do is I dig into each player, kind of review. You know, we all kind of know the 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 five by five stats. A lot of us like in our heads, like what we think they should be or what they have been recently. There's obviously some some things that we remember along the way as we're doing it. But I really go into each player, looking at everything you know on the hitter side from. Uh, plate discipline, um, all rate stats, all underlying power uh, metrics, speed data, uh, looking at their injury history. I'm uh, basically layering in there some some you know team and lineup context, like where they might be hitting in the lineup, uh, ballpark factors, and then I kind of do the same thing with the pitchers. Um, and then after that, I kind of do a, a very serious spot check because I am, uh, and you can ask the guys, you know, my my, my text chain of friends, uh, Rob Silver, Scott Jensen, Matt Modica. They always make fun of me uh, over the years of my projections, you know, just certain guys that I love that I just have really high. And so, you know, over the years, I've just kind of become a little bit more conservative. I've learned a lot from you know people like yourself and others that have been in sort of the baseball projections business and, and you know, to, to make it right, make it realistic. There definitely are players that essentially like pop out in my system, but they all fit into what a general expectation might be within a season. For example, you know, the, the plate appearances on the hitters on the team are going to be between 5,900 and 6,100 plate appearances, right? Uh, making sure that the, the roto categories make, make sense uh, as far as, you know, totals go, that the runs aren't, you know, extreme and they, they fall within range of, of, out, of realistic outcomes. Um, and of course, obviously, my Braves runs are going to be more than my Pirates runs uh, collectively. Same thing, just double check, triple checking on the pitching side, making sure uh, this is something that was fun. I was just doing the other week was just, you know, making sure that I have a realistic total on the wins and looking back and seeing, oh, what percentage of of wins came out of bullpens versus starters for all the teams and making some projections on that end for the future season. So it's really fun. I mean, there's really nothing like it. Um, so I absolutely love it. But the main purpose of it, really, it's 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 essentially a tool for for folks, subscribers to sort of recognize market inefficiencies that are currently out there. Right. And if NFBC, you've got drafters who have been drafting now, um, you know, for the last couple of months, setting the market. And for me, this is like my view on the market. Like if I was to set ADP, like this is what it would be. And so then people can go look in each, each player and decide, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, this doesn't. Yes, this is a sparkling value. Um, yes, this guy's overpriced and kind of going from there and, and taking it in that respect. Yeah. Yeah, and you come up with a VDP dollar, which uh, you know you have what the the dollar is worth for the player, and obviously if it's bigger than the market, it's the guy that you're gonna want. If it's very much bigger than the market, it's the guy you're really gonna want or get a lot of shares of. And of course, the opposite. If it's much lower, it's stay away from. Of course. Um, how do you come up with the the price on each player? Do you take the statistics and you run like an uh, like an auction calculator type thing on it? Exactly, exactly. It's um, I have a a friend that I've been working with for for many many years. who used to play uh, CDM in the early two thousands. Uh, Russ Prentice. He's worked with me at FTN. We've drafted teams at NBC together. He's really uh, formula spreadsheet master. Does it for a living in uh, in a, doing construction costing. Uh, but he's helped me a lot with uh, developing some of the formulas and and some of the adjustments. So, you know, a little bit of a secret sauce. Like we all have to have a little bit of secret sauce in there. Uh, but but you know, certain adjustments made for you know, for catchers and everything. But uh, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, um, there's a, um, you know, got the, got the human element, which I think is important and is, is what kind of makes mine a little different. 
Um, and then of course I do, I look at yours afterwards and, and steamer and, and I do like to compare, but what I'm not doing really exactly is trying to like win a projections competition, right? Like I think, you know, like I'm, you know, I, I go up against, uh, you know, yours or steamers or the bat because I am sort of, um, over projecting a lot of times on the, on the playing time. Like I'm assuming full health on almost everyone. I mean, of course I have adjustments on the regulars like Buxton trout and, and guys like that. Uh, but for the most part, I'm, you know, I have a sort of a higher game total per player. Um, and, and I haven't yet really factored in like the bottom end guys, the, you know, the guys that are going to get maybe 20 to 80 plate appearances who aren't really on, even on the team yet. Uh, those guys haven't been really included into the formula quite yet. Yeah. Yeah. So you're using your projection tool. Basically, it's a fantasy baseball system uh, that you're basically using it to signal whether you have a buy or you have a pass signal. Should you buy the player or not? It's not a baseball system. It's a fantasy first system. Yeah. And yeah, definitely. Uh, that That's the way ATC was originally. But, um, you know, I, I rounded it out and now it's just a full fledged system as well. Um, you know, since it's on fan graphs and all that, you know, it's sort of, uh, you know, get compared to the baseball aspect, too. So I got to make it accurate for that as well. But uh, I, I totally agree with the buy and pass method. That's really the way it works. And yeah, and when we were talking, um, you actually nailed it exactly. You, you, you explained it perfectly, exactly like my my purpose of it and what I want to do with it. Uh, but right. I do want to mention, like, I love uh, with your model the, the the you know the risk factors involved and the uh, you know the um, uh, blanket on the name of the code. I just had it in in, in my head, but the the uh, interstand deviation yes. and inter uh, skew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love yeah. It. So I, I know I know I haven't thrown it to Ruvain in a little while. Sorry, it's okay. This, listen, this is this is your guys' expert area of expertise. I'm not going to step on your toes or anything. I have my own expertise, and that's why working as a team, you have yours, I have mine, and, we, and that's why we work well together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I did want to I want to ask you, Vlad. You know, how do you incorporate risk into your thing? Because you know, generally when you put uh, the projections, any projections into an auction calculator, it's going to give you an expected total. Doesn't really contemplate risk in there. Now, if you have a guy projected for fewer plate appearances because you think he has a health risk, that's you know, okay, you're doing that, um, but it's still giving you an expected number. How, how do you co- incorporate, or do you even incorporate risk into how you draft and in terms of uh, your auction valuation? It's um, the the best way to put it is it is I do not recommend people draft off auction values directly and off a list because obviously you know everybody knows that roster construction is a big part of it knowing position scarcity uh, category scarcity all that is important so this is one part of the tool that goes along with the content and with my draft rankings if you're you know you're doing just you know regular snake draft um, as the weeks unfold here through the rest of January through February will be sort of diving into each position by tiers and identifying some of those players, basically highlighting uh, players that are, you know, sort of, um, you know, are more, you know, guys that would be higher in your risk model um, and lower. And so those are things that I'll be pointing out throughout the season as we run through each, uh, the tiers of each position. Um, And of course, you know, kind of understanding how to address it with balance um, as you draft, right? Because as we all know, um, even the, you know, the sort of the, the misunderstanding that like, oh, I'm going for the overall, I just need to draft a whole bunch of high upside guys is, is not the way to go. I think we all know that. Um, but uh, to answer your question, yeah, it's not built into the model per se, other than some just plate appearance and, and you know, raw data adjustments. 
uh, but it's something that goes hand in hand with the content. Yeah, so with ATC, the nice thing about ATC is that since it looks at many underlying projections, you know, each projection system underlying has a different thought as to what the true talent is of a player. Um, and ATC is the average of them. What's good about ATC is that not only do I provide the expected numbers, but I give you the flavor uh, of how different the projections are from one another over the average or under the average. And is there any skew? Are there more of them that are up and one that's dragging the average down or so on and so forth? And those two figures are the inter-standard deviation and the inter-skew. Standard deviation is a measure of how different are they, and skew is you know, whether it's more up or down. In general, I found that if you have a high standard deviation of a player, it's more risky. You should probably want a bigger discount to roster them on, on your team. And in terms of skew, negative skew is better because the wisdom of the crowd is really up. It's just one projection that's bringing down the average, so negative is better, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, let's go to Ruvain on this first. In terms of um, you know building your team with risk, do you think that – there should be a limit of total risk on your roster. Like, you know, don't take, don't take, uh, DeGrum is going to be risky. Um, Byron Buxton is risky. You know, don't take all the risky guys on a team or are you just avoid certain players, but you're okay with taking as much risk as you can, provided you keep getting good bargains. Is there a limit or not for you? I think there has to be a limit only because there is no crystal ball in knowing how p players react to them during the course of the season and injury. You mentioned Jacob deGrom. Last year, we had a ton of shares of Jacob deGrom. Why? Because according to our models and according to the pricing, we were getting them at a good price. And then a lot of other players who are injury-prone, quote-unquote, had great prices also. So we were thinking, oh, let's do this, let's do that. But because we had so much money invested early on in the draft, you have to try to balance it out. Because if you do, if you try to be risky up top, you can't really be that risky at the end because you need to get stats in the end. You need those, you need that base to create your team so you can compete throughout the entire year. If your risk is up top and that person and that player doesn't Come, come through and the bottom players are risky also, then your season is, whole, is hanging on by a thread. So I think there is a limit as to how much risk you can take on. However, there are safer risks and there, and there are non-safe risks. Like a, a safe risk is a player that you think is not going to get a lot of playing time, but maybe their playing time will go up. Uh, one of the non-safe risks is a player who's coming into the season injured and you don't know when they're going to come back. Like how, where are you going to draft Bryce Harper this year? Is Bryce Harper going to come back in May, June, July, August? When is he going to be coming back? How much are you going to pay for him? And how much risk do you want to take? Do you want to take him earlier or do you want to take him later? Vlad, any thoughts? Yeah, I think I'm in, uh, in, in lockstep with that thought. And, and definitely as far as um, taking those risks more so in the middle and later rounds um, and making sure you're cognizant of what risks you have taken up until that point in the draft. So if you have a fairly safe draft and you do feel a little shy on steals, uh, and you grab a Mondesi later, you know, obviously you don't want to have all your eggs, the stolen bases in that basket. Um, but you, you know, you, you, you can take some shots on players that you know are going to be fungible anyways. Most likely players uh, after round 15, that a good percentage of those guys are going to end up dropping anyways. Um, I know pre my pre-content days uh, before basically all of my information was out there and basically essentially people had my cheat sheet. Um I was less risk averse and I did have a lot of success in, in NFBC and other formats, but I think I was also, well, first of all, I was grinding a lot and working hard on the waiver wire, but I was also really lucky. 
and also a lot of a lot of churn and burn, a lot of turnover. Where you know you, you sometimes are able to hit on on the right players that help you. You just pick up the right guy at the right time. So I was able to sort of mitigate some of that risk. The older I get, and the more I learn from smart players around me in the NFBC uh, NFBC community, people that are winning. Um, even my good friend Scott Jensen, who I mentioned earlier in the show, who isn't it, it, you know after the we'll always drive back from Las Vegas uh, back to Los Angeles on our way back, and I'll always look at that team of his that he drafted in the main event. And I'll say, man, that is so boring. That is just like, it's just not my kind of team, not my cup of tea. Yet every year he's either winning his league or he's finishing near the top of the overall. And after a while, it just kind of is something starts to sink in with you. And so um, I just kind of recognized I'm, I'm taking my shots on, on risky players a little bit later in the draft. I think one good example of that last year was my two uh, big risks uh, that, that I was willing to take were, Cody Bellinger, and this was after he had fallen from like an ADP of around 90 to like the 160 range. That was a shot I was more willing to take. Uh, and then a Brandon Belt, who was going around 250 uh, ADP at the time. That was a shot that I was willing to take as well, somebody with a, with a very strong injury history. Um, and so I'm much more likely to do that than, you know, say, um, you know, like a Buxton early on. But if I do take a Buxton, um, then I'm, you know... It, I'm, I'm going to be careful. I'm not, I, I don't want to have like a Buxton, Tatis, uh, Mondesi, you know, team because, uh, you know, you're, you're not winning. You're not cashing. You're not getting extra money for, for style points, for, for posting a pretty team on, uh, on Twitter, on uh, message. Yeah. Board. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that it's okay to take on a lot of risk on your team as long as you get appropriate discounts. And, you know, when I do pricing, I, I, I have pricing as risk adjusted. So, you know, Freddie Freeman, let's say, let's say without adjusting for risk, he's $31 in the model. But with adjustment for risk, he's actually 33 because he's super safe. Or Mondesi is $20, but with a risk adjustment, it might be $15. Um, I'm okay with taking more than one uh, as long as you're getting the discounts. The only thing I'd add to that that I, I sort of see is that um, you can keep piling on in the aggregate on your team, but the discount actually has to be more. It's okay to have one guy at the the proper di- risk discount, but to to discount to to risk by three players. Let's say you want to buy three players who are more risky. You actually need a bigger discount. If if it's a five dollar discount that you need on three players, it's not just okay five on this guy, five on that guy, five on that guy. It's five on the first, maybe six on the next, maybe eight on the next. Like it, you need to be able to compensate. Um, by getting a bigger discount if the player is risky. Um, now, in general, I, I should you know we took a lot of Jacob Degrom last year, and that's because the price was just unbelievable for what we thought he was worth. But in general, when I draft my teams, it's pretty risk averse, um, and that's because we usually don't find that there are a lot of discounts in the market. But I guess last year, people that we, we play with smart people, and they were like, "We're not touching Degrom," and that's why his price fell to us. But in general, I find that. You know, I'm okay with it taking risk, but I end up not taking on the risk. I end up being more more risk averse. That makes sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. It, it really does. I know we had a similar discussion uh, last year, and I do like the way that you're you're very formulaic about it. And I think it's uh, it, it ends up um, you know it working itself out in in the results and, and how things yeah. are going. Of course, I mean, hey, at least you weren't uh, wrong place, wrong time in the 
first weekend of main event drafts uh, when Jacob deGrom, right before the injury, was going first overall in $1,700 oh, no. entry leagues. We 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 had him one year when, when he got injured in spring training. We, we drafted him that day, and he got hurt. The news came out that afternoon. And, and we bought him for $13 in, in a, an auction championship. That's not first-round value. That's, you know, ninth, eighth, ninth, whatever it is. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, risk-adjusted pricing was way, way higher than that. We thought it was a steal even at that price. Uh, but the problem is that we did it a lot, right? We, we did it in three different leagues or four different leagues. Too many at shares. A certain point, yeah, at a certain point, it, it wasn't just too many shares. I guess we just needed more of a discount to roster in our second league, in our third league, and so on and so forth. Um, anyways, uh, I do want to do some strategy, more strategy, and you know, since this is our first podcast of the year, we do want to talk a little bit about the player pool in general. We're going to be talking catchers today. I should have said that at the top of the show. It's our catcher episode to level the field. But before we do that, I do want to get your take on closers in general, Vlad. Um, you know, what I'm seeing in early NFBC drafts is that Edwin Diaz, Emmanuel Classe, they're being selected in the early second round, I've never seen it that early. Um, I don't want to just say whether that makes sense or not, but could you actually give me the case for and case against why you know why that's a good idea and why that's maybe a bad idea? You know, we were actually seeing it last year uh, a little bit too. Maybe not quite as high, but we did see some uh, in the NFBC market last year at the be- you know, sort of at the end of. Uh, I'm sorry. Early second round, we saw, who was it at the time, Josh Hader and Liam Hendricks going around there and, and mostly towards the end of the second round. But it started because uh, it started that way because the format was draft champions, 50 round draft and holds in NFBC, where there at the time, this time last year, last December, last January, there was even less clarity as far as you know who the closers were. is a very small list of, of elite guys. And if you remember even... Chapman was on that list, um, and uh, and and so there was a big push by the people drafting volume, drafting a lot of draft champions to to make sure that you were securing those saves. And of course, it ended up working out if you if you got the right players. Even to some degree, Josh Hader worked out, even though he absolutely blew up the ratios at the end of the season there. When uh, you know when he came to the Padres, you know he kind of still racked up the saves. So what happens is I think there's somewhat of a hangover from the draft champions into the 12-team OCs and the 15-team main events where there becomes this thing if, if people aren't comfortable with the market and they're unwilling to take their shots uh, later, then they don't mind sort of investing in those top guys. Um, now, for me, I, I also don't want to spend a lot in fab. Like when I do get into the 12-team OCs and the 15 main events, uh, I, I, would like an early clo- uh, I would like a good closer, but at the right price, uh, you know, for my RP one. So I'm never going to push up like from for myself. If I have the 15th pick uh, of a 15 team draft, I'm probably not going to take a Diaz or a Classe there. Uh, I'd rather map out my first five six rounds and sort of figure out where that first guy is going to be for me. Like if I like Devin Williams or Ryan Hel- uh, Helsley or Jordan Romano, like where is that? Where am I going to pick my closer at, and where would I be able to grab him? So that's how I kind of want to map it out. But it is a little different with the 50 round draft and holds that, that the majority of folks are drafting right now, as opposed to in March when we get to draft season with fab, uh, where, you know, we, we can pick up saves on the waiver wire and might come, you know, at a, at a premium at some point spending a lot of money on fab. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's the balance. So I can see it both ways for me. I'm never one extreme or another. I, I'm very anti 
That's the one thing I'm anti is anti-extreme drafting. I will never go into a draft or any year with an extreme strategy with any category or any position or, or any stat. Right. All right, Ruvain, how about you? There, uh, what are the, some of the other cases for and cases against uh, doing that? You're, you're, you're a very against guy, I know, but uh, can you make the case for and against? Yeah, I'm very against it, but there are reasons for it. I mean, these guys, like Edwin Diaz and Emmanuel Classe, they're going to give you strikeouts as almost as much as a third or fourth starter. They're guaranteed jobs. They're on good teams. There's stability there, and there's no injury history there. So for all those reasons, those guys seem pretty, quote-unquote, uh, safe. But you're leaving so much value on the table for other offensive players. How many times, how many, if, you, if you're getting them in the second round, you're not picking a second round hitter, which you can't get in the later rounds. A closer you can get later. So that's, it's like going after a mod like we used to for Mondesi and, and even Billy Hamilton. We used to push them up and, and draft them sooner just because of that one category. Remember, closers are not only not getting the saves all the time there's a lot of closers by committee they're being pitched in the most in the in the period in the in the time of the game when the manager wants them to so they may not even close edwin diaz pitched in the eighth inning a couple times and he didn't even come out for the night sometimes so you're not guaranteed that you're going to get the saves from them i just don't like leaving so much value on the table if you're getting a second round player i want a second round value you're not going to get a second round value if you pick edwin diaz in the second round yeah i mean obviously the 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 reason for is that the saves are so scarce. There's not a lot of lockdown closers, and the super elite ones are, they get it. You know, you don't have to worry about saves anymore. You don't have to use your fab. I think the the biggest reason for, from, from my mathematical standpoint, is if you want saves on your team and you look at the pricing for closers, the the round and the auction price that they actually go for in the market is so much higher than what if you run an auction calculator it's worth. Like Edwin Diaz, if you run an auction calculator, might be worth $20. But if you're picking him in the beginning of the second round, that's like a $30 pick. That's a $10 overpay. But that's not just true on top. It's true in the middle. If you're paying for a seventh-round closer who maybe your model says is only worth $14, you are still paying 20 something dollars uh, you know, uh, uh, if you're in the fifth round or so for it, you know, you, you're overpaying anywhere on the curve. So there's a, the, you know, I always bring the concept of the market premium. There's always a market premium on closers. The question is, where is the market premium the best? And if you believe that, okay, well, these guys are just so much more valuable than, I, I'm, I'm really overpaying in the middle. I'm just, they're so valuable. I'm not overpaying that much, even though it seems ridiculous in the second round then that's an argument for is that it's the least market premium. You know, there's also opportunity costs, you know, case for or against. You know, if you think that you can, you know, it, if, if you're taking a closer in the second round, it means you're not taking somebody else. You're not taking a top pitcher. You're not taking a top hitter. If you think that the drop between whoever you're going to get your closer next, it, that difference is not as great as the difference in the, in the hitter's well, then you know, then that's who you should take. the the the, um, the drafts are hard with with to me to to gauge these market premiums and opportunity costs because you don't know what's ahead of you. You know, you have to pick, and you don't know how far down some of the closers would drop. Like if you if you had a menu and you said, okay, I can wait until the ninth or tenth, then you have a better plan. But who knows? There could be a closer run in the seventh. It's much, much, much harder, and that's why people sort of do more and say, okay, I, I got to really push it up to the second. To me, the answer is that every draft different. It also depends on where you're picking from in, in terms of a draft. 
I find myself not wanting to draft closers so high in drafts because I think the market premium is way too much for those super elite in the second round. But in auctions, they don't get pushed up as much um, because of the dynamic of auction because you can buy someone at any time. Uh, I think that the super elite ones are actually worth it because you're not paying $30 in, in an auction. You're paying more like 23 And for that kind of value, you're only overpaying by 3 but you might be overpaying by 6 or 7 in the middle. So I find myself taking better closers in auctions and not in drafts. Make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's, uh, yeah, I think the mapping out strategy is also wise and it, it could work well if you know it, it, in NFBC we have a KDS system, right? You know, you're, you, you set your KDS before you go into the draft, you know, at least usually half an hour before where you're drafting from. And if you sort of lay out your targets of, of what your ideal team would look like or even secondary, tertiary uh, for those first six rounds. You can almost plan it out, uh, you know, who, who your targets might be. Like maybe you're in a position in the fourth round where you're most likely uh, going to have a choice between a Ryan Helsley, a Kenley Jansen, Felix Batista. If you're comfortable with those guys, then you can sort of target a, a target them there. Um, of course, as as we're looking at the the market this year, it really starts to get a little uh, a little scary after say pick hundred or so, right? So in fifteen teamers, that's like after the sixth round. Um, it's, you know, after that little area of Clay Holmes, Scott Barlow and Daniel Bard, who kind of, you know, sort of came out of nowhere last year, it really drops off, um, really hard. And so if you don't have one of those, those top guys, um, you know, if you think about it in a 15 team league, if there's only like eight, you know, nine or 10 solid closers, then yeah, I mean, then people are going to start overpaying for the next guys. The, the key I think is not getting into sort of knowing who your targets are and not, panicking if that closer run starts to hit if that bard barlow homes tier if, if those guys are gone that's fine you wait and, and you say okay i know you know or at least i've convinced myself that i think you know uh, jorge lopez is, is going to close for for minnesota duran's going to be the you know the high leverage guy that will be my target you know between him or jose leclerc or whoever you just sort of you map it out you have your plan for the entire uh, uh you know for the entire draft you kind of lay out where those closers are and then just pick your spots and not force it. So let's talk catchers, which uh, is the bulk of our show will be about catchers. Uh, now, uh, what we do here is uh, on this show, we don't just say, who's our top five catchers? I mean, I'm not really interested in that because I can't really pick five catchers at one time. And all the other shows will review the top five, top ten catchers. You don't need that. What we want to do is we want to spot some undervalued players, as per ATC, obviously, and based on, oh, well, ATC is saying the catcher's worth this, the market says this, well, looks like a bargain, but we don't take it, our ATC's word for it. We will then do a deep dive, right? We're using ATC to just bubble up to the top potential targets, and then we do a nice discussion about each to see whether we agree with it, whether we think there's more or less, uh, and then we can really um, clear the air for some picks. So for catchers, before we get into the actual players, uh, let's just set the stage with the player pool. Um, I've noticed, Vlad, and tell me if you see this, that catcher is very, very rich, especially in the middle. Um, in For one catcher leagues, it's actually rich the whole way there. I mean, the the top catcher, Real Muto, Perez, uh, all the way down to some of the middle ones, Stevenson, Jansen, Rawley, Kiebert Ruiz, those are decent catchers. You don't have the drop off a cliff for one catcher leagues. Uh, as far as two catcher leagues, um, you know, it does get 
crappy at the end, but there's just a nice... It's, it, there's no cliffs. It's a nice slide the whole way down. So I kind of think that you can really pick your spots here. If you have favorites, you are more likely to get your favorites this year because a lot of the pricing is bunched together in the market and bunched together what I think in real out reality is. Um, so to me, if you're in a one-catcher league, you almost can just wait and not pick any catcher and just get whatever the dollar catcher is or your last-round pick is in the end. And if you're in a two-catcher league, uh, a little bit deeper, 30 catchers, let's say a 15-team league, um, I would suggest almost saying you can get two catchers in the middle. Like, don't wait till the end. There's going to be some good value somewhere in the middle. You don't need a super elite. You don't need an elite catcher. You don't need a Varsha or Will Smith. You can take a couple of shots in the middle, but focus in the middle. You don't need to wait till the end. Uh, what do you feel is the player pool, Vlad? Yeah, so I my, my first article of the season um, of my new column, Gut Feelings, was specifically talking about the catcher market because it's something that, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it's it's where a lot of people start, but because it's been, uh, there's been a lot of discussion and, and specifically to this season, the fact that there are, there's an abundance of catchers in the first 10 rounds like we've never seen before in a very long time. So through the first 10 rounds of 15 teamers through 150 picks, there are 10 of them. Uh, there, I mean, not even 10, three, six, not, yeah, there's like 11 guys that are, are viable in, or have an ADP, uh, in, in the top 150. And yeah, it's, it would be nice to have one of those for sure. Uh, but there are so many ways, I mean, really the strategy is you, you pick the right player. It, it really doesn't matter. Um, but there has been a lot of discussion. Some people like to go heavy catcher. They like the J, the second round JTL real Muto. Other people like to punt extremely, uh, on the other end of things. Um, I like to just kind of take what the draft gives me. Like I have my certain targets uh, that I like. You know, I like Wilson Contreras. I like the other Contreras, his brother. I like Sean Murphy, Alejandro Kirk, and they fall in the right place. And if it's the best pick for me at the time against the other alternatives, that's kind of who I'll take. And then I have my second catcher list, you know, the Logan O'Hoppies, Bo Nailers of the world that, uh, you know, that would be fine as my second catcher, even like a Joey Bart. Uh, but... You know, looking back at, you know, for example, I did a little study of last year. I looked at the top teams uh, who finished in the top overall of the main event and the OC and just to kind of see what the, you know, who these team who, who these teams uh, ended up with. And it was a mix, really. Uh, you know, Rob Kramatola, who won the main, main event, he had Will Smith as one of his catchers. As we know, it was a top 100 pick. And then Nick Fortes was the second one. Um, you know, you, you see a lot of Wilson, uh, William Contreras teams, a lot of Christian Betancourt on a lot of teams, a lot of Jose Trevino's like it, it, it's really a mix. There, there's really no one size fits all approach. And I think that's the same thing once again this year. So you just kind of get comfortable with the targets that you like that you want. Uh, but I would not go extreme and just, you know, spend two of my first five picks on, on catchers just because it's a scarce position or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, a what you're seeing there basically is get the best bargain. You know, see wherever the price dips the, dips the most, that's who you get. You don't have to reach for players if you have that kind of fluid uh, catcher pool, catcher market, and that's what I'm seeing this year. All right, before we go into the undervalued catchers, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. So we're talking about catchers, and the first catcher we're going to talk about actually is I hate to say it right, I'm giving away the answer, is one of the answers for the trivia question. But this past year, can you name the one, two, the top five, top one, two, three, four players who were hit by pitch the most last year? Can you name them? Non-catchers? Over, overall, overall hitters, overall. 
Oh, I know because are you asking me or anyone? Yes, I asking both of you. I know Ty France is one of them. Yeah, no, France. no, it, mm. no. Brandon Nimmo. Nope. No. Come on, another Met though. Uh, Alonzo. No, getting hit. No. No. Really? Wait, how? Because I because I was doing uh oh. Marcana. Mar Marcana's one. Oh right, yes, yes. Marcana. Andres Jimenez is up there. Anthony Rizzo is up there. And Wilson Contreras is up there. Wilson Contreras was hit twenty four times last year, which is a crazy amount. And that plays into his OBP. If you're playing in an OBP league, Wilson Contreras, the lowest OPP he's ever had for his career was three thirty nine. And that was the forty sixth ranked player last year. So his OBP is very high. His, he had the lowest K rate of his career last year at 21, and he was a little unlucky. His Babbitt was 270. He's going to be in a better lineup this year. Um, his launch angle changed by almost a full two degrees from, two, from the two years prior, and he hit the same amount of home runs. He has a career high in hard-hit balls, according to StatCast, That's uh, with an exit over 95. I think he is a really good option at the at the price level that he's at, and I think you're not going to see any decline. And being on the Cardinals, they know how to manage their catchers. Vlad, what do you think of Wilson Contreras? Before I do that, I do want to say um, when you un, when you look at uh, Wilson Contreras wasn't qualified, um, you know, officially Correct. by his at bats, so that's why I remember because I was recently doing a study. I was incorporating hit by pitch into my. Uh, that, that's that's correct. I, I had to, I had to go to a different website to actually go see the <laughs> total and not not just the qualified players. Yeah, and I was going to say Ty France. He's second uh, behind Mark Canna since 2021. So it's Canna uh, and Canna 55, France 48 since the beginning of 2001. And Canna was hit pitch. 28 times last year. Yep. Uh, I like Will. I love Wilson Contreras. There's there's a you know people concerned about moving from playing half his games in Wrigley to you know in, in St. Louis this season and a little bit of a John Graydon ballpark. Um, I think that'll balance out with the with the team around him and him be a little more more motivated. I kind of see him um, kind of jumping into that Yadi Molina role and really becoming a leader on this team and almost a better hitter. Uh, and and so I I like him very much. I think if he stays healthy for a full season. I think he might uh, might mess around and be the catcher one or two this year. Yeah, I mean, uh, ATC has him as a, roughly a three dollar bargain in a fifteen uh, team. By the way, uh, just to to clear the air, um, you know, can't, we can't really talk about every single format. But when I call out dollar numbers, I'm talking about sort of an NFBC format, fifteen team, five by five standard standard league. Um, he's three dollar bargain, right? He's three dollars over. He's an eighteen dollar player. The market is like a fifteen dollars. He's going about pick hundred, let's say, uh, in the NFBC currently. Uh, I mean, Wilson Contreras. What I'm looking at is I'm looking at his risk metrics, and he has a very low interest standard deviation. Interest standard deviation looks at the the five by five roto categories and says how balanced is he. Well, he actually has four or five stolen bases a year. He's got a good average. He's got a lot of power for a catcher, good run, good RBI metrics. So even if he's a little bit lower in one of them, he might even compensate by getting a little bit more in the other, and his the risk of his overall value not coming to fruition is lower than other people who are one-category guys. If you, know, you stumble one category, well, that's the end of your value. And, of course, it's the end of your team value. It goes kaput, right? Uh, so he's very stable, and he's a catcher. You usually don't get these stable catchers. Um, now, I only have him projected for about 445 at-bats. He might actually get more than that. It's possible. It's possible. Um, 
low 20s homers. The the big thing I see with him, and I don't know if it's just a, a figment from last year, but he lowered his strikeout rate. It was 29% in 2021. It was 21%. That's a huge, huge drop for somebody uh, over that period of time, over a full season, 400-plus at-bats. Um, I don't know if that's a real gain, but if it is, he had a 270 BABIP last year. There could be batting average upside. Like I'm projecting him for 250. He could be a 260 player or so. Um, with that change in, in eye and that change in, in you know, a, a, an unlucky Babbitt. So I can actually see him going upwards, regression upwards. I, I kind of think it's a good buy, good solid buy. If you're at that spot, you don't have your catcher, why not? Uh, it's a perfect spot for him. And one more thing. According to roster resources, Wilson Contreras is supposed to bat second in that lineup. That's a very good spot to bat in that lineup. Yeah, second is fantastic anywhere. Uh, we'll so definitely, see. yeah, that that'll be interesting, and and I'm always very careful with uh, with the roster resource, and obviously, uh, you know, Mr. Martinez does a fantastic job with it, uh, but just so much is going to change, right? Like a little bit of news will will alter that a little bit. I think there's some whispers of a Lars Newtbar trade, in fact, um, you know, possibly going after uh, Pablo Lopez to that pitching staff because I know they want to they want to get a solid arm in there, uh, but there's just so many things that that lineup can do. Um, as far as, you know, the, the, the batting order with, you know, possibly Tommy Edmond at the top, uh, you know, Newt Bar could possibly be on top if he doesn't, um, uh, you know, if he sticks around with the team. Brendan Donovan, by the way, against righties was a really solid number two hitter ahead of Paul Goldschmidt. We can see him hitting there as well. But in general, if Contreras hits number two, uh, and you start seeing that in the beginning of spring training, you're going to see his ADP just soar up and he, he's going to be up there in the, uh, the Sal Perez range real quick. Next catcher we have is Sean Murphy, who I also see about a $3 bargain. Sean Murphy, he went from Oakland to Atlanta. Now you look at that ballpark factors. That's a huge change from Oakland to Atlanta. And I don't know if, I mean, the market is shrewd, but you never know. Maybe people are not taking into account his home run totals from the last three years, 18, 17, and 19. I'm scaling 2020 to full season, so just under 20. But if you look at the ballpark change, it would now be over 20, 21, 22, 23. So that's that's a nice bonus. Um, you know, he had, he had 537 at-bats. I don't know if you can count on that uh, going into Atlanta, but Atlanta likes to play their catchers. Um, they even give some DH at-bats in Atlanta. It's one of the best places if you're a catcher to get some spots. Darno, um, Contreras had uh, a lot of uh, at-bats for a DH last year. So maybe we see that at-bat spike again. If we do, he's a lock for value, right? But even at 470 at-bats, which I'm projecting, he's a very nice catcher value. And, you know, similar to Contreras, some of the things I said really hold. Um, He is somewhat spread out other than stolen bases. His strikeout rate, 20% last year. 20%. That's enormous for catchers. Very low risk of a bad batting average. Like Because you have a good eye and you don't strike out a lot, you're probably not going to have a big risk of going kablooey with your average. So it's... Lower risk, that's fantastic. And the the lineup in Atlanta is tremendous. I mean, whoever he's going to bat against, going to be batting afterwards, you have Acuna in that lineup, you have um, Albies in that lineup, you have Olsen in that lineup. Um, he's going to get a lot more RBI opportunities and run scoring opportunities than he did in Oakland. So a lot of the stuff is going to just go up and up. Uh, I'm excited for Sean Murphy. I think he's very similar to Contreras being, uh, you know, one of the better catchers and of value. Do you agree, Vlad? 
You said you have him. Was that the 470 at bats or plate appearances? At bats. Uh, okay. About 50 I'm, walks, so 520 or so. Yeah, so I'm in the same ballpark there. I've got 475 at bats, 529 plate appearances, about a 9.5 walk rate. The one thing that I have higher uh, than the projections that are out there right now and um, possibly even yours, but I have them slightly higher with home runs. So I have them 24 on the season, um, and that's in slightly less plate appearances. Uh, so basically a, a, a more per at-bat average on the power. Um, so I do think the power is going to play for him a little bit. I think he's kind of had that season coming for a long time, and I think it might come to fruition this season. Um, and then you did mention the the stark drop in his strikeout rate. He had been a 25%, 27% strikeout guy over the course of his career, uh, 20% last year, as you'd mentioned. Uh, but he'd always been a, a poor batting average guy. For a catcher, he's been decent. But in general, you know, he's a 236 career hitter, and that's, you know, about 1,200 plate appearances. Um, I could see that, you know, creep up a little bit. I don't think he'll necessarily be helpful in that category, but I don't think he's going to kill either. And as you mentioned, the, the the plate appearances and just the fact that he's a good defensive catcher uh, and the fact that we saw William Contreras and Travis Darno together in that lineup a lot with one of them DHing, I think plays well for both Murphy and Darno. Um, and not to get sidetracked, I did just want to mention I, you know, because I've been doing a lot of drafts, I've noticed a huge drop on Travis Darno price uh, since Murphy uh, came on the team. And I think Darno at this point is going to end up becoming a solid value because, like you know, like we said, he'll probably get a fair share of plate appearances as well, um, and he's a good hitter when he's healthy. Yeah, agree. Ruvain, anything to add? Yeah, well, Sean Murphy is, he, right now he's stable. He played, he caught 112 games two years ago, 116 games last year. Um, you mentioned the K rate. He had the second highest war as a catcher, only behind Real Muto. So he's really, really solid overall. Um, the only thing that, that concerned me just a little bit was that his launch angle decreased a little bit, but it did his home run to fly ball went, went down accordingly, but it didn't really affect his overall numbers. So like you said, Ariel, if he's playing in a better ballpark, even with that decreased in launch angle, he still will get his home runs. Yeah, his fly ball totals are going down, and the home run to fly ball, it looks actually a little bit unlucky low even. So maybe he'll hit a few less fly balls. Uh, ATC's projecting 21 homers. It's, you know, about three less than you. Uh, but I, I definitely see uh, the potential for more. Uh, he definitely is a value, uh, for sure. Um, next up, Danny Jansen. Uh, Danny Jansen here, uh, ATC has... About a two and a half dollar bargain, a ten and a half dollar player going for about eight uh, in terms of market value. Um, they've cleared a little bit of the air. Toronto getting rid of their prospect catcher, but they also then jammed the catcher trading for Dalton Varsho. Although we think Dalton Varsho is gonna not play catcher and play mostly outfield. Uh, Danny Jansen, very very low. Uh, parameter risk. His ATC metrics are actually very good. Negative skew, low inter low intraprojectional risk with the categorical risk. So uh, you know, there you go. He had 15 homers, 15 in only 215 at bats. That's enormous. Um, I'm projecting over 20 homers for him. And look at these strikeout walk metrics: 17.7 strikeout rate, 10% walk rate. Um, very good eye, and he walks a lot. So these are excellent metrics across the board. Seem to be coming in his own. The question is, how much playing time will he get? I don't think on the Blue Jays he's going to get any DH time because they just signed Belt, right? They also have to play um, you know, maybe Vlad Guerrero plays there a little bit. Uh, 
you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna clog up there with with with, with them. So it's pretty much him or Kirk as the catcher. So I don't know if he'll get the actual plate totals to boost his value, but the per at, the per at bat stuff is excellent, and he's still a, a nice number one catcher. Uh, I'm not as thrilled with him as the other guys so far, uh, but he's he's still okay. And of course, if his price drops uh, even lower than this, then I think he's an, a reasonable bargain. A- any thoughts on Danny Jansen, Vlad? Oh, absolutely. I got a lot of thoughts on Danny Jansen, mostly because uh, he's somebody been drafting since the very beginning. Just one of those guys that uh, I've always kind of bought into and believed in because of his tremendous power. He was, uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty big pedigree as well. Despite being a 16th round pick, he just really came on in the minors. Uh, but um, the problem, the problem with him had always been he was a, a massive batting average drain. He just really never got the, you know, the plate appearances. It was just the year before the pandemic, 2019, showed a little promise at a little bit over 100 games. He hit 13 home runs, but he hit like 210, basically. Uh, he's a career 220 guy. And part of the problem with last year's average is had he not got hurt, and I think it was a couple of times that he got hurt, he probably wouldn't have hit that high. That, that 260 that he hit was in 248 plate appearances. Um, he's pretty much somebody you shouldn't rely on for batting average. It's mostly the power is you're looking at, you know, per uh, per at bat power. Now the concern with Jansen for me now, and the fact why I've reduced him in, in uh, my projections previous to their release was the Brandon belt signing. And that really does sort of muck the waters there for them because Alejandro Kirk uh, is, you know, they're going to ha- want to keep his bat in there uh, a lot. I mean, obviously he'll probably doing doing some DHing as well, but um, I, I just don't see the, over 400 at bats basically uh for him so you know we're seeing 499 plate appearances from the bat uh steamer's got 425 i think i've got 390 so i i'm considerably less i could uh, could end up being very very wrong i do like him as a per a bat player but in general i think i'm a little bit lower on jansen than i would like to be uh after this brandon belt move yeah uh very thorough review there. Uh, I guess uh, the the value really changed after that that the signing of Belt. I mean, there's there's nowhere to put him at DH. There's just just do the math. There there is nowhere to put him. And you never know. Dalton Varsho could end up catching some. Right. I I see a big playing. It's funny how they traded their prospect uh, away only to create a bigger crunch. Uh, and then they find Belt. Very confusing. Uh, what they're yeah. doing, but I don't get it. Well, actually, he's he's never had more than he's he's never had more than three hundred eighty four plate appearances in his in his career. He's always been injured. He, he gets hurt, little nicks and things. He's out for two weeks here, two weeks there, two weeks here, and it's and it's a, it's a big problem. But according to Statcast, his hard hit rate when he's out there is forty six percent. And the last two years, he's been pulling the ball more. So if you pull the ball more with no shift out there, his batting average may not be as bad as people are saying it's going to be. Now, when you mentioned Belt. Belt actually said earlier this month that he feels he's completely healthy. He had surgery on his right knee this past September, and he anticipates seeing most of his start as the DH. So my concern is Danny Jansen, A, staying on the field either because of health or because of getting playing time. I think that's that's where he's going to get crunched the most. Yeah, interesting take. Definitely I like the other catchers we've said so far uh, more than him. But, again, if you if he's more like, uh, you know, if, if you have the, 
if you have him on your roster, he's he's going to be good. It's it's just more of a risk and what the price is. Uh, but you know the fact that they signed Belt what, doesn't that drop Jansen's price in the market, right? I mean his value goes down, but his market price goes down. It should. it should, but then also I'm a huge Belt apologist and and still gonna gonna double down and go in him this year. And most likely he probably will not be healthy again this year, so that would probably reopen opportunities for Jansen. But like Ruben said, Jansen's also very injury prone. So we'll see. Maybe we'll see Santiago Espinal or uh, uh, or Spencer Horwitz uh, grabbing the advance yeah. there at DH. <laughs> a lot of things to One consider. Of yeah, a lot of things to consider with him. But uh, there are, are all the arguments that we've laid out. Uh, we have a mailbag question from Mike Carter who asks, what do you guys make of Cal Rowley? Believe the hype. Well, Cal Rowley is on the list. I don't really see him as a big numeric uh, value uh, compared to market. He's going at par value, about a $10 player. He's going in the 11th round. Uh, but it's tough to beat that power. I mean, he's really the, the home run guy now. He's he's uh, Mike Zunino in a good year, put it that way. Uh, he had 27 homers last year and just 370 at-bats. Uh, could be more. You never know. Um, in terms of just checking whether it makes sense, I always want to check, okay, that's what he did. Does it make sense? Fly ball rate, 55% last year. That's what it was close to in the minors. Home run fly ball rate, a little bit higher than it was in the minors. But the barrel rate, 15% that he had last year, really does support that. So, you know, he's legitimate. I I think his underlying metrics show. So I'm not concerned about his power. His average, well, he's a batting average risk. He's a 220 hitter. Uh, but, you know, you take that with catchers. With, with some of these catchers, if, if, as long as you get one or two categories that are above, the RBIs will be high. I mean, Seattle will be decent. He should get somewhere in the 60s RBIs. Uh, most projections are have that as well. Um, so, you know, this is like a Gary Sanchez, Mike Zunino, Goodyear type, which is very, very valuable. Uh, the ATC volatility risk, very low. He's got negative skew. He's got low interprojectional standard deviation. So, Low-risk guy, pretty much this is what he is. Um, and if you have par value, you're getting a par value guy. Uh, I kind of think that for a two-catcher league, he is really a good anchor to to start with. And then you can get somebody else that maybe fills in a little part of the uh, uh, you know your catcher values. Uh, I think in a shallow league, though, his cost might be high. You probably don't have to reach for him in a shallow league because you can replicate his production elsewhere, especially with uh, another catcher. So uh, I would say deep league, I'm interested. Shallow league, I'm not, but very stable. So I would definitely happy to have him on my roster, and I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, what are your thoughts on Cal Rowley, uh, Vlad? Uh, so the one thing I, I, I was just curious because I hadn't dug into him, I think, since last, uh, you know, since kind of setting the projections. And I wanted to look back at his split stats just because I was curious. And, of course, one season, just 400 PA, small sample. But really interesting, uh, as probably you would imagine, uh, two-thirds of his home runs last season came on the road. Obviously, you know, uh, his home park, not necessarily great for, for, uh, you know, for, for, for power, for production. He hit 180 at home with nine of his 27 home runs, and he hit 244 on the road. Um, and then as far as the splits, uh, the power splits, 24 of his 27 home runs came against righties, which is interesting. Granted, three times the plate appearances, but still it's 24 to three ratio there. Um, power righties to lefties. Interesting. Interesting. Um, he, he is a switch hitter, right? Uh, he, he is a switch hitter. Yeah. And you've got, what's his name? Uh, Tom Murphy is back. If he's healthy, might hit, get some at bats against righties. 
Interesting. Yeah. Also, also Cal Cal Rowley only had three hits through May fifteenth last year, so he started very very slow. I remember he started taking off. He hit a home run against the Mets and it killed the Mets, and that's when he just started taking off. That was a May fifteenth home run. He took off after that. And if you look at if you go even deeper for for his stats, he had only sixteen percent soft contact last year, which means when he hit the ball, he hit it pretty hard. So it's a matter of you know, actually just making contact because he did have a strikeout rate of 29% last year. So when he makes contact, I, I think, Ariel you, said, Ariel, you said he's a Mike Zunino. He is the exact Mike Zunino. If Mike Zunino was, he's Mike Zunino reincarnated. He came from Seattle. It's the exact same thing. I think if you are okay with that not so great batting average and get those 20, 25 home runs, he's the guy to take and you can get him pretty at a good price. Yeah, Zunino in a good year though. Like I, yes, I, I yes. Zunino's yes. had the crappy years. This is like Zunino in a good year, but I'm more sure of it. So yes, yes, um, absolutely. Okay, um, there you go. That's a guy to consider. Uh, going all the way much lower. You mentioned him earlier, and to be honest, I really didn't know much about this guy until I bubbled up the ATC projections. Logan O'Hop on the Angels. Um, I'll, I'll let you go first. Uh, Ruve, why don't you go first on him? Uh, what are your thoughts on on the Angels catcher? By the way, I did get confirmation, and I am sorry oh, yeah. to interrupt. Um, I I was always calling him O'Hop because I never had heard his name, oh, and then I listened to I believe it was a DVR and Eno, and I heard Eno keep saying O'Hoppy, and I was like, that doesn't sound right, but maybe it is. And I looked it up, so I guess it is O'Hoppy. <laughs> well, you can. Let's say Sounds funnier. Sloppy like O'Hoppy, or uh, there's the you can put nicknames to O'Hoppy. Better <laughs> name. It's a better name to uh, to uh, broadcast and announce to. All right. Well, well, he <laughs> is the youngest guy on this on this on list of catchers we mentioned. He's only 22, and he only had 16 plate appearances last year. And he did something that very few catchers do. They jumped from Double A to the majors. That's not normal. So what I did was I actually looked at his minors last year. In the minors last year, he had 26 home runs and seven stolen bases before being called up. This is a guy, if it's a two-catcher league, I'm okay taking him because he has that upside. And just that alone, he's not going to be that expensive. Not many people are going to know too much about him because who's going to trust 16 plate appearances? But if you look at the minors, he does show promise of power there. Yeah. So he, was, he, he was the guy that came over in the Brandon Marsh deal. Right. Yeah, last August. Uh, yes. He, yeah, it's going to be him, and it really depends on how he looks in camp and if he can sort of stick around. He's, he's obviously a, a strong prospect. He's a good hitter. Um, decent plate patience, actually. Seems like a guy that may not necessarily hurt you in uh, batting average. But, of course, you know, rookie coming up might have some struggles. Uh, but, you know, Max Stassi is still there, and Max Stassi was showing some promise in 2021 enough to, like, make him a – you know, like a solid yeah, 20th rounder as your as your second catcher last season. But then Stassi was hurt and he stunk. He was essentially horrible. I think there's a little bit of bounce back in Stassi for this season. Not that he's going to be fantasy relevant or anything, but enough that he's, you know, he's decent defensively to sort of maybe mix in and just give, you know, the Ohapi a little bit of trouble. But I'm that's what I'm hoping for, especially drafting Ohapi, that he really kind of comes into his own and just kind of explodes as a rookie out the gate. That's what I would love to see. Uh, because he really does have the talent to to you know to show that off. Well, I, I see the Stassi as as a, a a path to him playing more. I mean, Stassi had a 180 batting average last year. Um, that's path to playing time. Uh, it really is. Uh, and and if you want to, you know, sort of Sean Murphy, you know, the reason why he really was fantastic value wise was because he came into a lot of at bats. I can see a path to that with with Logan O'Hoppy. 
And um, all they have to do is beat out Max Stassi. They don't have anybody else. So uh, th- that's what I see as the upside with him. And good player per, per plate appearance. I mean, I'm projecting him for 10 homers and only 250 at-bats. Very, very decent. Uh, very low volatility. And usually with rookies, you get a higher volatility, right? Projections are a little bit not sure what you're going to get. They're closer than for most rookies, especially most rookie catchers for him. So that makes me say, hmm, there's something here. Um, you don't have to pay a lot for him. He's not for one-catcher leagues. He's for two-catcher leagues. But I kind of see, pick him up, see if he stumbles into playing time. You can always throw him away for another catcher if you want at that level. Kind of like him. Uh, kind of like him. Uh, he's he's growing on me here. So I think it's a thumbs up for me. I'm in. Sounds good. All right, yep. let's do a couple of mailbag questions. Uh, we've gotten thanks, everybody, for Sending in those ones. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> first question from Drew. Who is this year's Sean Murphy, the guy who ends up playing a lot more than we thought and gains extra roto value because of the extra playing time? Uh, <laughs> funny how that worked in the question. I mean, Ohapi is the guy for me. Anybody else that we're missing, uh, Vlad or Ruvain? We're talking about catcher, uh, catcher specifically? Catcher specifically who uh, might have playing time upside, and that would really cause them to be a good value because they'll just gain value from plate appearances. Yeah. I'll tell you, I think um, Luis Camposano could be that guy uh, because Austin Nola's, you know, he's kind of on the wrong side of 30. He's got some injury history a little bit. Um, you know, he's an okay hitter. Uh, I guess a decent contact guy. But Camposano might actually get an opportunity and earn it. I mean, there's no Jorge Alfaro there anymore in the mix, so he has an opportunity to kind of maybe run with it. So I would li- at least that's what I would like to see uh, happen. Uh, and possibly Nick Fortes too, right? I mean, a guy, one of the few catchers that can yeah. steal a few bases, pretty good plate, you know, per plate appearance guy. Um, but you still obviously got Jacob Stallings there, who's a pretty good defensive catcher. Ruben, anybody else to add? Yeah, I got a guy that you mentioned earlier, William Contreras. I mean, he he was blocked in Atlanta. They had to put him at DH. He's going to be the starting catcher in Milwaukee. I think his his, his at bats are going to go up, and I think his productivity is going to go up as well. That's a good one. Uh, I'll throw a. Is it Eric Hasse or is it Hasse? Like a Hoppy? Hass. I think just Hass. Hass. Eric Hass. Eric but I'm down Hass. Uh, how about him? Uh, they have shown him. He had not a great year last year, or at least in the early going. He had some flashes of goodness last year. But uh, they also sometimes play him in the outfield to give him extra outfield to give him extra at bats in Detroit. Um, I, I was on him for last year. Price is still somewhat cheapish, so I can see him stumbling onto more playing time as well. Yes, and it's just a testament to how bad that Tigers lineup is too. Oh, the sure. Fact that sort of, sort of thirty-year-old journeyman catcher is getting like prime at bats, but Hass I know very well because of DFS. And you just, you know, there's a bad lefty on the mound. You play Eric Hass because he mashes left-handed uh, pitchers for for some power. So. Um, I like him in that regard, and then really, there's nobody in his way. It's like what Donnie Sands? Uh, no, there's nobody in his way, way, and they like him, and they give him more playing time. You know, it's I know we're picking on uh, crappy situations. What a crappy! Well, that's how we make our money in fantasy baseball by mm-hmm. identifying bad situations where the guy stumbles onto more playing time. That's playing time. that's the whole yep. name of the game. All right, a next question from David: Does Kirk find his second half stride this season? Also, is there a Joey Bart breakout coming? Any thoughts, Led? Uh, I, 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 I like Joey Bart. I actually just drafted him in the twentieth round. Was my second catcher in my latest draft champions. Uh, of course, this you know guy that's probably going to be hitting you know near, near the bottom of the lineup. 
Uh, but you know, I did, did did like some stretches that I saw out of him. Obviously, you know, big uh, prospect, good pedigree. It's never obviously going to be the you know the Buster Posey that some unfairly compared him to, even even in the slightest. I don't think anyone said, oh, he's going to be the next Posey. But I think there were some Posey esque skills that they thought with him. I don't think he'll ever be that. But I think he could kind of take it to the next level, hit for some power or surprise with 18 plus home runs. Um, and then the other part of that was Alejandro Kirk. Oh, Alejandro Kirk is just, I think, right. one of the best like contact hitters in, in baseball. And I love him. And I think he probably takes it to another level this year. I think anything's possible with him. I agree. Anything to add, Ruben? Yeah, I, I agree about the Alejandro Kirk and about um, Joey Bart. His K rate last year, he had a 38.5 K rate, and his, his bat was 326, and he still batted only 215. It's hard to see. I mean, he was sent back down to the market to try to get his head on straight, but I mean, he is a prospect. He's only, t- I mean, still, I guess you can call him a prospect still. He was a top prospect. He's only 26. Catchers usually hit their stride around 28 to 29. I mean, look at Travis Darnell. He was with the Mets. He never really hit a stride until he left New York. It may take a change of scenery to help Joey Bart, but I think he will get it, but I don't think it's going to be this year. All right. Well, we have a bunch of other questions, uh, more pitcher questions. So uh, uh, we're sort of running late. We'll uh, either put them next show or even on the pitcher shows we do. Uh, but uh, I do want to get to Ruvain's injury report. What he got for us uh, this first week of our draft prep season, Ruvain? Okay, I got a couple of people. First, we'll start with Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant said this week that he'll enter spring training healthy and with no restrictions. He's coming off of plantar fasciitis last year, that foot injury that really destroyed his whole season. Um, if you want to go after him, it, he may be a bargain because people may be scared. They'll think, oh, Chris Bryant's an injury risk. He, I mean, I, I see he's playing in the same um, stadium he was playing last year, and people were high on him before he got hurt, so I don't know why people shouldn't go after him now. Kyle Hendricks says his shoulder, which he strained last July, feels quote-unquote amazing, but his availability for opening day remains up in the air, so I'd probably stay away from that. And Frankie Montas, he's battling shoulder inflammation. He is expected to miss the first month of the season. Who's going to take his place? That's an excellent question because no one knows yet. Yeah, Montas, uh, I don't know, some of these pitchers that the Yankees have gotten recently in the trade deadline just didn't work out. Sonny Gray didn't work out. And uh, going back to Hendricks, what? What in the world does that mean? Oh, my shoulder feels amazing. I just can't pitch. What does that mean? It basically, it basically means he's not going to start the season on the IL. That's what it means, according to him. But, you know, he's getting older, and I don't know how much fantasy value he has anymore. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing with Hendricks is that it was the pinpoint control um, that did it for him. And once you, you lose some of that with age or whatever, and you don't have that pinpoint control, I mean, he's he doesn't have much else. So he's... I loved him for years and years and years. I was always the advocate. Get Kyle Hendricks. He'll he'll save your whip. He'll save your ERA. Who cares about strikeouts? You'll get them otherwhere. But you can't. Uh, he has a skill that no one else can have. But uh, that's that skill is clearly gone. Um, how many teams will Kyle Hendricks be on on your roster, Vlad? It's going to be zero. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm I'm not a, a Hendricks guy, and I hope he doesn't listen to your podcast. Although I know Matt Mervis and Vinny Pascantino do. Uh, that's right. Vinny, we had uh, Vinny Pascantino and we had uh, Matt Mervis. Oh, man. I feel so bad for Matt Mervis because after we did that show, well, we knew that Hosmer was on the roster. And then they mm-hmm. signed Trey Mancini. I'm like, oh, my God. What are they doing to this kid? And and you're talking to somebody who has been drafting a lot of Matt Mervis. And this is even after 
Arizona Fall League when everybody was going gaga over him. And I'm he like, was ah, I'm not going to spend a high pick on Matt Mervis. And then I started kind of looking into him, got into it, and I started drafting him. But you know what? You know how it is. You know how it goes. Cream rises to the top. If it's meant to be, I think everything I kind of kind of see and feel about this kid, I think you guys probably feel the same thing. I don't. I, I think he's going to be a, a sort of a star in the making, and I think he can kind of break out right off the bat this season. And one of the guys you mentioned was Eric Hosmer. Eric Hosmer lost his job last year. So Hosmer's not a lock to be there the entire season. Yeah. He's not a lock to be there through May. So, uh, you know, there's still a path of playing time. And if the Cubs jump out early and start doing well really early and Hosmer's not producing, he's going to be gone. Yeah. Well, I mean, Mancini could be a guy to trade, who know, you know, build up a value trade. You never know. But, um, you know, I was going to ask you, Vlad, do you think that's a buying opportunity on, on Mervis? Because... Obviously, his price is going to plummet, and if you think that he's still going to come up and he can still DH or, or he can play first base and you can have Mancini in the outfield for all you know, is this now a buying opportunity or is this, uh, I, I don't know if the value is worth it. Certainly in the NFBC where you you know, you know have to roster players, and there's no there's not a lot of room maybe just not for this year. Well, what are your thoughts on, on Mervis? Yes, I think it's, a, it's an opportunity where if he starts to go drop beyond, which looks like is happening now, beyond pick 300, which is... 20th round, 2021st round uh, borderline of 15 teamers. He starts to fall beyond that. And you're looking at the alternatives in that area, uh, you know, guys without complete full playing time, guys like Nick Gordon, uh, you know, Louis Ringipo, um, you know, Eric Haas. Like these are the type of guys in his range and his price point now. Um, and and there's more upside with him. That's a type of shot, right, that, that I think is worth taking. Right. And, uh, you know, it depends on the format, too. If it's a 12-teamer, obviously you're not going to hold a Matt Mervis if he starts the year off in the minors. But I think if I'm drafting, you know, early or, or like a draft and hold and he falls far enough, uh, I'm taking a shot now and just hoping I, you know, get something. Because I feel like at some point this year, even if it's not from the beginning of the year, at some point a talent like him, guy that's hungry, motivated, talented, is going to win out over a bum like, you know, Eric Cosmer, who I also hope yeah. doesn't listen to this pod. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope he does. Uh, but yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> and if you want to check out those interviews with Mervis and with Pascantino, we just did them last week. Check them out. All right. Well, that's all the ha the time we have time for this week. But before we let you go, Vlad, why don't you just tell everybody where we can see all your stuff, we can hear you, listen to you, and uh, read all your fabulous work. Why don't you uh, kick it off? Yes, on Twitter, at RotoGut, and then all of uh, our content this season, including my VDP projections and articles, fab column during the season, uh, which I think everyone should have access to, is at ftnfantasy.com. Uh, so thank you guys so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure. It's a nice way to kind of sort of kick off my uh, podcasting, uh, you know, um, go here in the preseason, and, and always a pleasure, and, and and happy ADC, uh, happy early ATC day to all who celebrate, which should be everyone. Yeah, there we go. All right, Ruben, uh, quickly, uh, what do you got going on? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I'm going to tweet out injury updates as they come in, and they should be coming in within the next month or so when pitchers and catchers start to uh, report to spring training. You can also follow my weekly in-season article on Roto Bowler that comes out usually over the weekend to help you with your fab pickups. All right, I'm on. I'm Ariel Cohen. Twitter is ATCNY. Only five letters. Amazing. Uh, and uh, uh, you can read my work over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer. Projections, ATC projections will be on Rotoballer, on Fangraphs, and on CBS Sportsline. Uh, and a nice Excel Google, uh, sorry, nice Google Doc sheet on that site as well. Uh, so check them out. Um, 
use them, and, you know, let me know if you find anything. Let me know who you might have seen something that I didn't. A good player, a bad player, question. Maybe there's a naming issue. You never know. i got to match all these players. Sometimes a player can come out wrong. Who knows? Let me know what you see and enjoy them. All right, once again, thanks so much, Vlad Sedler, from Co for coming on the show and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.